Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to toxicologist Mandy Olsgaard about a very disturbing incident that occurred at one of the Northern Alberta oil sands plants. Uh, well, it started last May, actually, and where there was a, a leak from a storage a pond uh, where seepage from an oil sands tailings pond is stored. So there was a leak, it was discovered, it was reported, uh, but local First Nations were not properly informed. So that's a bit of an issue. And then uh, just a few days ago, there was a, I, I take it, a, a pond collapse and 5.3 million liters of tailings pond water was released. This is a major story. And as it turns out, and longtime watchers of the oil sands will not be surprised, but others might be. The monitoring and the reporting that's going on around the oil sands is not very good. And we don't shine a light on this very often. It's very, very, very complex and technical issue. But Mandy is going to walk us through this. So welcome to the interview, Mandy. Thanks, Mark. I'm nice to be here. Well, I've been reporting on the oil sands for a long time. And for a while, you know, back in 2016, 2017, when there was a big flap over some ducks that died in one of the tailings ponds, that drew attention to it. Uh, occasionally, First Nations are able to put it on the public agenda, you know, with uh, they have a complaint or they, you know, something that happens. But for the most part, what goes on in northern Alberta around these oil sands tailings ponds is not well reported. Uh, we don't know much about it. The, and by that, I mean the, the general Canadian public. But maybe we should start this interview with your take on what happened uh, at Curl. This is Imperial Oil's Curl oil sands plant. Because you've done, a, you've done a case study of, their, of uh, how they're handling their, their storage and releases and uh, uh, into the into local water bodies. And maybe give us your take on what happened here with release one last year and then release two a few days ago. Yeah, um, so I have been following groundwater beneath tailings ponds for a while now. I think it's a important important component of um, the story around tailings ponds and uh, the quality of them and their environmental performance. So, uh, you know, we have limited details available to us, but when I look at the environmental protection order and the details that are there, uh, release one seems to be from tailings pond water that seeped to the groundwater 
which is connected to surface water. And then this groundwater migrated north offsite and was detected in a natural water body wetland area. So that release one is tailings pond water that entered groundwater and moved to surface water. Release two is a bit different. We don't know what tailing, we don't know what storage pond would actually release the water, the 5,300 cubic meters, but it looks like it's an industrial wastewater pond, which would be a different water quality and a different source than that tailings pond water and release one. I, 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 we need to make this this distinction because the uh, Alberta Energy Regulator, which is the provincial agency that is responsible for regulating the oil sands, in its documents, it makes it makes it it talks about industrial wastewater. And so, what's the difference between that and the water that we would find in a tailings pond? Yeah, so industrial wastewater they call it non-contact water. So it's maybe uh runoff like precipitation or rain that falls onto the mine site they'll hold that in an industrial wastewater pond but it hasn't actually been produced by bitumen extraction so the oil sands process tailings pond water is that process affected water that has been created from the Clark hot water extraction process and so they are two different water sources industrial wastewater is managed under the Environmental Protection Enhancement Act. Tailings pond water is managed under the Oil Sands Conservation Act. Is industrial wastewater a less toxic form of, of water uh, when it's released into, into water bodies and into, in, into the local, uh, into groundwater than tailings pond water? Um, they have the same contaminants present. And so I think the degree of toxicity, uh, it depends on a number of factors. So if that industrial wastewater has been held on site for a long time and contaminants have increased in concentration, it can be just as toxic as tailings pond water and vice versa. So I don't think there's a blanket answer to that. They're both very complex mixtures with a lot of different chemicals that have different effects to humans and the environment. That's an important distinction. Many of these contaminants are more toxic to humans actually. And it was the AER in its report made a point that the release, the release one that happened last year contained enough contaminants that it qualified under the act. Right. So this is, this is, I, I assume that there are standards or thresholds within the act uh, for when the, the company has to, oh, well, this, you know, this release was big enough. It was toxic enough and had enough of the right or the wrong chemicals in it and contaminants. We have to report this. And some others maybe don't have to get reported. Would that be a fair characterization? Yeah, it wasn't about reporting. So the release itself triggered the requirement to report and triggered the non-compliance. When they tested that water from release one, arsenic, iron, uh, a hydrocarbon, sulfate, sulfide, they actually exceeded Alberta's surface water quality criteria for the protection of aquatic life. So that's when this became an environmental issue, which is when we read the EPO, shocking that the AER says that at this time there are no impacts to the environment. We haven't seen that supplemental report. So all we have is the EPO saying that these five chemicals are over safe thresholds but then we don't have any information to verify that there's no impacts to 
any aquatic receptors. I, I've uh, covered a couple of spills uh, over the years, and almost invariably, you know, the AER and the company report that there are no impacts to animals, animal life, to wildlife or aquatic life. Yeah. <laughs> now, you were the senior toxicologist at the AER for uh, a period of time. What's your take on that? I, I, is because a lot of a lot of the folks uh, and and I should point out for listeners, uh, if you want to go to my Twitter uh, handle, my personal Twitter handle at Political Ham, you'll find a thread that I put together, and it's got links to interviews, it's got links to AER documents. It's it's good background for this interview, and a lot of the folks that responded are really cynical about the AER. They mm -hmm. see the AER is captured by the industry, uh, downplaying the the impact, you know, of leaks and, mm -hmm. and releases. But you were there. You were on the inside. What's your take? Yeah, unfortunately, there's not a performance system or like a guidance manual we can pull up and say, here's the thresholds. Above these, we would expect risks to the environment and we would step in and do something that doesn't exist. That lies with individual subject matter experts. So it would be based on a combination of their experience and education and their tolerance, their risk tolerances. So my role there and the chief environmental scientist was to develop those environmental performance systems. And uh, yeah, we got two years of work done. We were moving that way, but we we were not successful in the end. We both ended up leaving the organization. And to my knowledge, there is no environmental performance system there beyond what individuals are deciding on individual files, such as this release. So if I understand this correctly, uh, it was determined that an environmental performance system needed to be in place. You began the work, you and a colleague began the work of developing it. You left the organization before it was completed. The, the organization didn't continue with that work, didn't bring anybody else in to finish the work that you had started. And so the AER, from its ability to, to determine whether some whether releases have exceeded acceptable levels, is no further ahead than it was before you undertook that work. From what I can see externally, that's correct. There's no performance evaluation system that's outward facing that anyone could understand. So I will caveat and say, I do feel um, if there's an acute, an emergency event, the AER would understand the risks associated like with that because it often involves mortality. So the ducks dying on St. Crude's tailings pond, that was a lethal event. They would understand that risk. It's when we move more into chronic, long-term, even that short, it didn't result in death of a wildlife species or a fish that's where it really becomes professional judgment by the people working at the AER. Okay, so you kill some ducks, you release 5.3 million liters of, of toxic water, that kind of stuff is fairly straightforward. You know what? I think on a good day, I could figure out that that was not a yeah. good <laughs> Yeah. Right? Yeah. But, but really, uh, and those things can be cleaned up, those kind of spills yeah. and, and so on. But it sounds like that it's the it's the chronic persistent release of this water into groundwater uh into rivers and uh, nearby rivers like the muskeg river right the beaver river the athabasca river all of the tributaries 
that might at the end of the day, because it's cumulative and it's this has been going on for decades, that sounds to me like that might be the real story here. It's not the catastrophic event, it's the long-term degradation that might be the big story. What 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 your what's your take on that? Yeah, I would wholly agree. So we've been seeing you know, the quality of groundwater below tailings ponds deteriorate over time. Concentrations of chemicals are increasing, but we only know this because it's self-reported by industry to the AER in annual annual groundwater monitoring reports that we have to request and pay for. So they're publicly available, but they're very difficult to track down. And that's the case study I did. I looked at the groundwater below Imperial's facility in the tailings ponds, and I saw some alarming trends. So over time, these have been increasing and industry has been reporting that to the AER. So I think the AER could have stepped in sooner with some sort of um, mitigative action to try and you know, intercept that seepage to groundwater to prevent that water quality from deteriorating further. We know that Imperial turned their seepage interception system on. That was specifically put in place to intercept groundwater moving to surface water. So a couple of years ago, that was turned on. This is not a acute incident that happened. The AER and Imperial have been aware of this for years. This is a chronic, this is a chronic issue. Yeah. And now, a systemic failure, I would say, of our regulator. Right. And and I should just point out uh, in the thread that I, I put on Twitter, um, there's an interview about a 2020 report that came out of a NAFTA panel that indicated they looked at what does the literature say about leaks in the uh, oil sands tailings pond? And they said the literature is conclusive. They're leaking all the time. Yep. There's absolutely no. And I did that story and a couple of others did that story. And it was basically got no attention at all. And and I think that's because the only time we ever pay attention to this is when there's a catastrophic event, an acute event, like the 5.3 million liters that can't be ignored. And and so here we here we are. But let's talk about the about the case study that you did, because as I understand it, Mandy, I think people would be shocked at the number of areas within like curl where uh tailings pond water is seeping into water bodies. Yeah, we don't know exactly if they're going into water bodies, but it's moving off site. It's getting through their seepage interception system. And so there's groundwater monitoring wells placed all along the northern edge of the ETA. And there's several of them for years that have been reporting increasing concentrations of the chemicals that naturally occur, but become... um, they accumulate to a higher degree in tailings ponds. And so this is part of the issue. Many people are like, well, it's natural. The oil sands, we're cleaning up the world's biggest oil spill. It's not what's happening. We're we're actually concentrating these chemicals in localized areas. And now they're moving into the environment at a higher concentration than they could do naturally. And that's what's tipping the scale towards risk. How risky is it? Like, you know, are we talking about deformed fish? Are we talking about the, you know, uh, some of the vegetation dying? Uh, Just, you know, are we talking about humans? You know, the First Nations communities in this area have been complaining for years and years and years that their water is contaminated, that the fish that they eat are contaminated. and, And, you know, aside from the odd media story, we really haven't paid a lot of attention to it. So just how serious 
is that? Yeah, so as a toxicologist and risk assessor, I've worked for years with industry to try and develop better uh, performance assessment methods where we look at bioaccumulation of chemicals. We do a bit of different screening. And so for this release and the five chemicals that the AAR noted in the EPO, um, arsenic is one of them. Yes, that is a risk to fish, but it's actually a greater risk to humans. And it's a risk of forming cancer. It's a carcinogen. We don't regulate arsenic that way in the oil sands. We regulate it from an environmental perspective. And so I've brought this chemical up on a number of occasions as a concern of a potential, a chemical that's more toxic to humans that we're not um, monitoring and managing it that way. Uh, the other one, iron, you know, iron, we're worried about discoloration or distaste in water. Iron might have some effects to aquatic biota. So those fish and bugs, but you know, humans less. Uh, the hydrocarbons, so the F2, this would be toxic to fish and aquatic biota. So it could, you know, directly kill them if concentrations are high enough, or it could affect their reproduction, survival, growth. It's also, if benzene is in that mixture, more toxic to humans. So like I said, these are very complex mixtures. And when we're talking about hundreds of chemicals, you have to go through that very thoughtfully, and you almost have to bucket them What's a higher risk to humans? What's a higher risk to the environment? How are we going to manage this complex mixture in the environment to protect all the receptors, protect everyone, make sure that communities can safely eat foods, drink surface water from muskeg, that those fish are healthy, that we have biodiversity. It's not as simple as comparing it to one guideline, which is what it looks like the regulator has done here in the EPO. So, Mandy, Okay, so this is really complex, but it looks like the, uh, at least in the case of Imperial Oil, where you did this case study, Imperial is reporting its releases and all the chemicals that it's it found in those releases to the regulator. Yes, in the groundwater report they submit every year. Yeah. Right. And what does the regulator then do with that information? That's been a black box for me. When I worked at the regulator, I could have requested it. I could have reviewed it externally. I can't find any evidence online that they have implemented a compliance or enforcement type action. So when we look on that dashboard, the incident dashboard, you know, several of these contaminants are over guidelines or they're getting over their control chart limits. They're moving into a space where we'd be concerned. We're not seeing those incidents on their dashboard. So it looks like they're only dealing with them internally and there's no awareness externally of what's been going on. Okay. So the industry doesn't, or the, the regulator doesn't really have a, a system in place to assess the seriousness of releases because that's you were you were involved in that performance system performance yeah. evaluation so it doesn't have that it gets the information from the about the releases from the companies so it has it has the data but then it seems like there's a gap between where we get you know the regulator gets the data and and then evaluating that data, assessing it as to whether the, the seriousness of the risk, and then moving it up, if potentially if it is serious enough, moving it up into an incident where then the company would have to take some action to remediate it. There's some, some, some gaps in there. Is that a fair way to describe it? 
Yeah, I think this is where the complexity and the ambiguity comes in. A release is defined as an acute emergency event. The regulator has a good handle on those. Publicly, we generally see them. They're what concern us. It's what we call these incidents or non-compliances. They're kind of sitting below the surface in this regulatory reporting required by industry that AER has full discretion over the review and management of. We're not seeing that communicated externally. So the general public would have no idea that there's these large contaminant plumes below tailings, ponds, and groundwater. I think we all intuitively know. We know they're seeping, they've been approved to seep, but they're below every facility. And that sits in these reports that you really have to have a lot of education and experience to maybe understand, to review and tease those out. This case study, you know, it took me over 100 hours to get through that report. And I had to review seven separate reports to piece this puzzle together. That sounds to me like a process failure. I'm not sure what kind of a failure it is, but a failure on the part of the regulator to manage the information that it's getting so that it can take action and and protect the environment, protect human health. And when you think of all of the other projects, in addition to Curl, I mean, Curl's yeah. a big a big plant, but it's hardly the, what are they, 22, 23 up there? I mean, there's, yeah. a, there's a lot of them. It sounds like there's a potential here, you know, that this is a, this is a major environmental a threat to the environment, a threat to the ecosystem, a threat to biodiversity, and, and potentially a threat to human health. Yeah, from what I've reviewed, I would say there are potential risks to the environment and humans. I think it's difficult to discern those risks now and understand the degree because we don't understand what that area looked like prior to development. We don't have a good handle on that. And so sometimes... You know, when you're sitting in it, you don't notice the small changes, you become accustomed to it. There's a lot of economic benefits. So maybe you're not really noticing it. The indigenous communities, they're saying, we don't, we don't see frog, we don't hear frogs singing. We don't see moose. What's happening? Where's all the wildlife? These are indicators of biodiversity shifts, population crashes. We don't have the monitoring data to confirm it. And I think industry has been very successful in their lobbying efforts, to be honest. COSIA is a lobbying agency. The consultants writing their reports, industry has a lot of discretion over the content of those. So I think they've really created this gray area we're all living in, where it's difficult to discern, like, this is not the natural condition up there. And so, you know, I that's quite frank and bold to say, but I really do think that we have... Um, you know, lost track of the natural condition. And we live in this, what I'm calling basically, it will become a super fun site under the United States Environmental Protection Agency definition. Yeah, something like Three Mile Island, the nuclear yeah. the, the nuclear uh, uh, plant that, that was leaking in, was it New Jersey? Uh, I think it was, and and was a was a major event back in the in the 70s. Well, look, the, where I want to go with this, Mandy, is the, the oil sands... And I'll back up just a little bit. I don't know that Canadians understand that oil and gas is the largest export for Canada by a mile. It's about $100 billion to $120 billion a year. The next biggest is autos at about 60, 60 to $65 billion a year. The taxes and royalties that governments get. Now, of course, that fluctuates depending on the price of oil. 
but you know it tens of billions of dollars uh it's a it's a big contributor to the provincial budget it it's i mean one of the reasons why the federal government is so reluctant to come down uh with both feet on this industry is because the federal government gets billions and billions and billions of dollars worth of taxes so and and then of course the companies are fabulously profitable at the moment because yeah. prices are high i mean we're, we're talking tens yeah. of billions of dollars in net earnings uh i think i was looking at cnrl the big the biggest oil sand producer and in 2022 it's net earnings its profit were 11 billion dollars okay yeah. so this is this is an industry where money talks yeah and if i floated the hypothesis to you that there is a culture within the regulator, within the industry, that there's so much at, at stake here for the economy and for individual companies and for everybody, that we're, that the releases like this, the, the concerns that you're raising are minimized. They're, the, some, they're buried in the, in, the, in the reports, they're buried in the, and, and the only ones we really see are the acute ones, the ones you, you just, you can't, you, you know, the regulations, the, the legislation is clear enough, those have to be reported. And, and so the industry takes one on the chin and, and moves on. But is that a fair comment about the culture? I think it is fair, but I, I'd like to think within the AER that I worked at and know it's not so nefarious. The AER was born out of the ERCB and they had a very different mandate. I think that those experts were trained in a way and they looked at data in a way that they didn't question the environmental risk because the economic benefits were so high. So they came out of a culture of, yes, let's produce, let's make money, let's build the economy of Alberta. But there was no, because Alberta environment at that time managed the environment, they didn't have to. And so when the AER was stood up, they didn't have that environmental side come over. So I'd say within the AER, I think it's a legacy of how they operated as the ERCB. Within industry, I would say that's absolutely the case. They know what they're reporting. They don't want certain things brought to light. They know how to report it. They figured out how to play the game very well within the regulator. And they can knock on that door anytime when something starts to look a little too transparent or like it might come to light. And so I do see it as kind of dual-sided. Okay, we uh, you know what we don't have to paint the the regulators or the companies as evil, yeah, you know. But we I think it's absolutely fair to paint the companies as self interested. Yes, yes, I agree with that. Yeah, you know. And, well, and, I as an expert have tried to work for years behind doors with them to improve systems to better evaluate the environmental performance to protect risks to humans in the environment, and it's just one road block after another because it would be systemic changes it would be changes in the way they operate it would increase operating costs i would say it's a drop in the bucket compared to the profit they're making but they would be fairly large changes yeah and and you know i spent five years in the in the industry uh down at the field level and talking to petroleum engineers every day that's what i had to do <laughs> and and I, and you get a sense of the culture there it's all about, and they're incentivized to, to think this way, mm -hmm. and and that is the lowest possible cost, the lowest lifting cost, the lowest uh, op operate, the lowest yes. cost of getting a barrel of oil out of the ground. That yeah. that is their mandate. And if you're an, if you're an engineer, 
then uh, you are maybe given a bonus. Your job prospects are you do it. You want to do it at the lowest cost. You want to keep those those that equipment, whether it's a well or a plant. You want to keep it running all the time as much as you can, maximize revenue. And I heard grumbling about, oh, you know, grouse, uh, you know, where there were problems or, you know, some other bird. And and yeah. there, there was, there's a lot of that. And you can see in the industry, the culture is that they take these kinds of issues. They're not willing. Their arm is twisted. They haven't, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they do it because they have to. Not they don't they don't they tell you publicly, they tell you publicly, yeah. Yeah. you know, that how great they, you know, how much they respect the environment and all of all of that. And mm -hmm. you know, emissions is another good example, a grist for another conversation. Yeah. But but behind closed doors, that's not the case. They, no. they, they, they you you have to twist their arms to get them to do this kind of stuff. And what's it's it seems to me that particularly in Alberta, where oil and gas permeates the political culture and 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 the culture generally, is that there is kind of a conspiracy of complacency. Everybody's got to a point where, you know, things they're making lots of money. Uh, they do what's necessary under the legislation. The AAR kind of winks and you know is comfortable with pretty cozy with the industry and tell us about the company reaction when you brought this up either behind closed doors or public in public meetings and the companies haven't been very happy about it. yeah this is getting a bit away from toxicology and risk assessment but yes it's uh it's extremely difficult to be a i i didn't view myself as a dissenter i was doing independent assessments and reviews and bringing my findings forward to industry on behalf of my clients and uh met with huge hesitancy um what I thought would be simple solutions or low hanging fruit to maybe increasing protection of the environment or people was just, yeah, met with closed doors. And ultimately I was pushed out of rooms of three, you know, individual companies, technical working groups. I've been accused of trying to make more work for myself and make more money when I've requested reports to review. Um, when we were maybe pushing an issue to resolution technical experts were removed from working groups and indigenous elders were brought in to replace us. So picture your grandmother listening to a presentation on cyclone technology for tailings and then being asked, does that sound good? Would that make a good reclamation landscape? Like this is what's happening through reconciliation and how industry is interpreting it. So I do see um, experts that are outspoken and really still trying to get to the heart of the issue and find solutions are being pushed out. Experts that are maybe a bit easier to deal with and stick around and, you know, different personality types, they're, they're staying in those rooms longer, but we're not seeing changes. So this, just to be clear, in your view, this is a, a systemic problem. The way it's the way the system is set up, it's the way the legislation is set up, the regulations set up, the way the a the Alberta Energy Regulator functions, the 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 way that the companies operate within within that system. I actually think it's how it's been operationalized. I think the legislation is very powerful and as explicit as legislation can be. I think if we saw enforcement of a PIA of the Fisheries Act 
some of those, you know, more definitive legislation, I think we would see a, a different landscape up there than we are. I think it's how Alberta, the ERCB, the AER have operationalized it and industry being allowed to have their say in how it's been operationalized. But I do think that the legislation's robust. That leads me to a very interesting point. So you will see uh, boosters of the industry and you will see industry people themselves saying, we are the best regulated uh, industry in the world. And do you know where that came from? That no. I actually know, I know the answer to that. So it's not okay. it's a rhetorical question. In 2013, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers hired <laughs> Meg Worley at that time and mm -hmm. to do a study and compare the Alberta regulations to places like Norway and the UK and, you know, other, other jurisdictions that had regulation. And they came back and they said, far and away, Alberta has got the best regulations. But the thing was the mandate of the, the terms of reference of the study <clears throat> specifically <clears throat> it, uh, restricted uh, uh, Worley Parsons to only design, not to performance. Yeah. And and this is this is the key thing that we that everybody keeps missing is we've we've written great legislation, we've written great regulations, yeah. we've got but this culture that that has evolved in Alberta basically undermines all of that. Fair it's, comment? Very fair. Yeah, nail on the head. Perfect. <laughs> right. And yeah. so what we're seeing here is is we're we're pulling the curtain back a little bit to see the the wizard you know uh, at work in uh, uh, sorry Wizard of Oz reference for all of you younger listeners, uh, <laughs> 1939 film film based on the you know Frank L. Baum novel. Okay, you can Google it, uh, but that's that's essentially we're pulling the curtain back here a little bit, and it seems to me that in this day and age, and I should as an aside, I should point out that I have argued editorially for a long time that the oil sands could have a, a future into the 22nd century as a purveyor, if it provides feedstock instead of for refineries for advanced material manufacturing, stop burning it, start making stuff with it because it has bitumen has amazing chemical properties. It you know, works really well. If you can make carbon fiber and stuff like that, but it can't have that kind of a, a long life under this system where we're slowly poisoning the environment and, and wink, wink, nod, nod, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in the regulation and in the performance. So it seems to me that if this industry is going to continue, it seriously needs to get its act together. What's your take, Mandy? Yeah, I think reform is absolutely possible. I think we have to see industry um, actually start to walk the walk. We see what they put about their engagement on websites. We see their ESG and social governance, but they're not actually putting that into action. And I think they could. And like we talked about here, I don't really get into the economics of industry, but the money's there these just exorbitant amounts of money and so what it would take to actually operationalize a new more protective system to actually be the best in class it 
to me, I guess from where I sit, it's not a lot of money. It wouldn't impact stakeholders. We're talking about billions of dollars. So it's absolutely there. The experts are willing. The communities are pushing for it. There's people within our regulatory and government agencies doing great work. They're not moving into those upper management executive director roles. They stay down in the technical roles. So again, I just sit in one little small part of this health risk assessment. But from where I sit, this is absolutely possible. But we need a culture shift, I guess, in Alberta. Okay. Now, if we don't have that, let's say that the present system continues and the calls for reform go unheeded, which is what's happened in the past pretty much. What happens then five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the road? Are we looking at major health impacts for people who live in the area? Are we looking at major uh, impacts on the wildlife, vegetation, biodiversity, that sort of thing? I mean, or, or are we there already? Like I said, we don't really understand what pre-development condition was beyond what Indigenous communities have told us, like how populations used to look and what type of animals and that. So, you know, 5, 10, 15 years, I think it'll look pretty similar to what it looks like now. Those are small populations up there, and it's really hard within small human populations to see these really big effects. So um, I think we are talking chronic, like, next generation type things a hundred years from now my we've talked here about this release and groundwater from the operational phase of oil sands my greatest concern as a technical expert and from the review i've done is actually the reclamation of the oil sands how those tailings ponds are going to be reclaimed because the word remediation and the chemical the removal of chemicals is not even under discussion that's what i've been pushing more than anything and that's a whole other topic for a different day, but I really do see the long-term risks from closure and reclamation of the oil sands as being the greatest health risk to the environment and communities up there. Well, we'll, we'll close out our interview with uh, a couple of comments about that because the, you know, I've, I followed uh, some of the, the debate around reclamation and remediation. And the industry has been grappling with this for a long time, and the the government and the regulator keep kicking this can down the road. You know, the it was Directive uh, seventy four in yeah. or seventy nine in two thousand and nine, and that you know they couldn't meet those targets, so then they gave them Directive eighty five, and they're probably going to miss that. And and the government just keeps kind of shrugging its shoulders and going, oh well, you know, okay. And and the the issue here. As, as far as I can see, is not that we don't know how to remediate these. We, we could remediate them. The question is, the, what industry says, yeah, we want to do that, but we want to do that at the lowest possible cost, which is actually what they say about everything, right? Uh, when it comes to operations, it, they want the best technology at the lowest possible cost. And if you, they don't have it, then they just, they delay and, 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 uh, and push back. And is that, would you agree with that? I, I, I would agree with the statement, but I don't think industry actually says we want the lowest cost. I think that they pervert science in the process with that. Um, like that's what's driving them. That's their and motive. So they kind of use science to tell the tale, but they don't directly come out and say we want lower costs. If they did, I think we could all actually be like, okay, 
what is the lowest cost solution that also presents the lowest risk? But we see these studies and this work coming out that is biased, right? Like COSIA is a registered lobbying agency and they're also putting out the scientific report for tailings. Like it doesn't take much to put that together and what the, you know, the driver is. But if they would just say it, I think we'd all at least be moving forward together. But we're spending, like myself as a scientist, I'm spending all my time trying to, bring the facts to light or bring alternative studies to be like no that's actually not the full story and so we just spend so much time in this vicious cycle of like their science our science it's not there's science and we should be bringing it all together and evaluating it but we're not because of these external drivers which are almost always economic and yeah, so maybe. but you are right the tailings issue it is treatable it's remediatable. This is this is uh, not in question. And we have the legislation and the policy in Alberta to do it. It has not been consistently applied in the oil sand sector like it is in every other sector. Maybe just tell us a little bit about what COSIA is what the, and what the acronym stands for. Ooh, what is the acronym? It Canadian, is oil, the... Canadian Oil Sands uh, Innovation and... Alliance. Yes, something like that. And it's basically yeah. where where the the oil sands uh, companies share technology, they share scientific research, they share all of that, and uh, and and then I guess they lobby. And, and what and the reason I bring this up is because there used to be the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. All the oil sands were active participants in that trade. That was the big. That's the big trade industry group. And COSIA was kind of off to the side, but affiliated with, mm -hmm. with CAP. And then the oil sands companies effectively left CAP. It seems like it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they've effectively left CAP yeah. and, they, and they've moved, they've created this Pathways Alliance for Net, net, net Zero, uh, Pathways Alliance for Net Zero by 2050 is how it was first <laughs> introduced. And now it's just called Pathways Alliance. And, and COSIA has COSIA actually... Has formally been moved under the Pathways Alliance. So now the oil sands companies have, have direct control of it and they have their own lobby group and mm -hmm. and and you know and and they're stepping up lobbying in Ottawa and lobbying in in, in Edmonton and 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 all of this goes on behind the scenes and and you know we don't talk about it because you know anyway this my my point here is mm -hmm. that this is a very well organized system to protect the status quo yes yes that is something that is something that i've been arguing about with carbon capture utilization and storage you basically bolt on a bunch of equipment build a pipeline and bury your emissions underground you know in an old oil and gas reservoir and the the companies want the status quo with all with its incredible profitability to go on as long as possible and they push back against any uh, potential changes to that status quo. Now you've been in the, in the, seeing the industry from the inside. Is that a fair take? Yeah, I think absolutely. The last provincial technical working group I sat on, COSIA had a seat at it. A non, you know, art, some, I guess he had some technical background, but like a provincial technical working group to try and you know, actually look at the scientific gaps associated with some of this oil oil sands mine water treatment. And COSIA's got a seat at that table, a voting member. But technical experts like myself were not voting members, only allowed to comment on things. And it's a provincial working group. So yeah, I would say 
the province is maintaining status quo too in the way that we're approaching these things to keep industry at the status quo. Fair enough. And uh, listeners, uh, I'm going to be interviewing other experts as we go along on this story, because I think it's time that we under better understood the system that that Mandy and I have been talking about today in the culture and and how it basically subverts the intent of the legislation and the regulations and leads to these releases and and, and spills and environmental and human impacts in northern northern Alberta. So stay tuned. This is uh, probably the first of a number of these kinds of interviews. Mandy, uh, we'll probably have you back because, as you say, this is a this is a, a big onion with a lot of layers to peel, and we've only just begun. So we'll look forward to future chats with you. Thank you so much for having me.